0: I ask you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. If you're not already there, we're going to start in verse uh, 24 of this chapter. As you know, we have been uh, looking at this book since Labor Day weekend, maybe, and uh, slowly working our way through. And this morning, we're going to close out uh, chapter 1. Uh, there is a, a lot kind uh, I want to cover in this, and so I want to ask if we would just uh read, it, read from it now, and so as you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, I'll read starting in verse 24, and we'll read through verse uh, 32, if you'd stand with me. Let's hear God's Word to us. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served Created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised, Amen. Because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women, and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of god so god gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what so that they do what ought not to be done they've become filled with every kind of wickedness evil greed and depravity they are full of envy murder strife deceit and malice they are gossips slanderers god haters insolent arrogant and boastful they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things will things deserve death, they do not they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower's fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Do you pray with me? Father, in your grace, we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear. Would you help us to uh, understand uh, your thoughts and your ways? Would you help us to understand your grace and your mercy? Would you help us to understand uh, your truth? We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? A number of years ago, when I was uh, a campus minister working with uh, college students, I received uh, an email from uh, a student on campus, and he was inquiring about our ministry. You know, what time did we meet? Where did we meet? Things like that. And uh, he had a couple of questions. It wasn't so much about what um, we were studying or how many people were there or is there food or something like that. Uh, his question was, uh, am I going to be accepted? Uh, are, are you going to allow me to, to come and be at your, your meeting? Because he went on in his email to share that how he's a, a Christian, uh, reads, reads the Bible. Uh, he also is a homosexual. He's gay. He has a gay lifestyle. And so we sat down and we talked and we had um, a meal together. And he shared a little bit about his story, as much as you would share with a stranger, I guess. And I told him about our ministry, told him about when we met, and what he would expect, and what it would be like. Uh, invited him to come, wanted him to come, uh, prayed that he would come, but he never came. And I kind of reflect upon that, that time with him, and, the, and that, that moment, and uh, it, it made me... Realize a, a little bit more so, with a little bit more clarity, this issue of, of homosexuality or same-sex attraction, uh, it's tricky. It's, it's very personal. Um, it can be very difficult. I'm sure there are people in, in this room who uh, are connected with this uh, subject, no individuals, uh, and it can be very personal. Uh, we're going to talk about it this morning because it's in the passage. We don't make a, uh, a habit of talking uh, about this. This is not one of my top 10 uh, sermons to give, uh, but it's, it's in the passage, and I f- feel like we need to give some space uh, to talk about it. And so what I want to do is just talk about what a little bit, roll out a little bit more with the, what Paul's saying in Romans. Uh, I want to give a, um, answer some of the, the pushback uh, that is given uh, about the Bible and uh, same-sex attraction and then talk about uh, a little bit how, as 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 a church, uh, we respond to it, uh, not not politically, but uh, as a church, more maybe more pastorally, uh, so to speak. How do we respond to it? What should be our maybe our stance uh, there? So first, a, a little bit about uh, the passage. Uh, if you're here with us last week, we been, we looked at starting in verse 18, how Paul talks about the wrath of God has been relieved, been revealed. Uh, the anger of God. And the, and the question that goes with that that we didn't really answer was, well, how is it being revealed? How is God's wrath being revealed? Is it, you know, the, the earth opening up and lightning and thunder and people being swallowed up? Is it something like that? Uh, I think it's something maybe a, a little bit more subtle, so to speak. You notice the refrain that you see in this, in this passage starting in verse 24 and then in verse 26 and in verse 28 God gave them over, this refrain that Paul uses there. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts in verse 24. God gave them over to shameful lusts, verse 26. God gave them over to, to a deprived mind, verse 28. This is not God intervening, but it's the sense in which God is, is letting uh, individuals go the way they want uh, to go. It's not like when it says that God gave them over, it's not like God says, okay, fine, I'm done with you. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to know you again. I'm completely turning my back on you, and you're just, you're, you're nothing to me now. I don't think it's saying that, because if that was true, uh, he'd be, there, there would be no hope of salvation for anybody. He would turn his back on, on everybody uh, because of the reality of, of who we are in light of his holiness. What I do think it means is that he is just, he's, uh, gave them over in the sense that uh, he's letting them go the way they want to go. Imagine you bought a plot of land and um, great piece of property and you build your house on it. It's your dream house, architect, got it designed, you've got it, great builder, got it built, the interior looks great, you've got your designer, everything looks great, it's done. Interior of the house is, is done And then you turn your eye to the exterior. You think about uh, the the property that surrounds it. And you think to yourself, you know what I want to do with this property? You know what my vision for this property is? I just want to grow a bunch of weeds on it. I just want it to be infested. I just want to grow beautiful weeds out there. What would you do to grow weeds? Would you go to Lowe's? Would you corner the guy in the garden section and say, you know, this is what I want to do? No. You would just let it go. You wouldn't do anything to it. You would just let it go because weeds are naturally going to develop. In a sense, that's what, that's what God is, that's what Paul is putting forth for us here. That, that God's wrath is, is being revealed in the sense that they're being given over, they're handed over uh, to this to, to go and to, to live the way they want to live. Uh, it's not like God is reaching inside their hearts and, and turning a switch and, and doing something special to them. He's just letting them be who they want to be. Uh, to be naturally now in the second section of this refrain, the second paragraph where it says he gave them over, Paul specifically talks about sexual brokenness, God gave them over, and then he makes this gives these comments about sexual brokenness, men with men and women with women and and so on and and so forth and it 's like Paul is using that as a uh, a special test case of what happens when you suppress the truth. We talked about this last week, and this is the context of this, of this passage. Uh, people suppressing the truth about God. Instead of worshiping God the Creator, they've decided to worship something else in creation. So they're substituting uh, God's truth for their own truth. And Paul, it's like he gives a, a, an example of what that looks like in this particular area of, of sexual uh, brokenness. And so with that in mind, let's think a little bit, what does the Bible say about this topic of homosexuality? And then what are some of the um, uh, objections that people have uh, uh, to it from a, in terms of how we find it in the Bible? Uh, some groundwork is this. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and that's the, the groundwork for how we understand uh, marriage, uh, that, that, that God has established marriage to take place or sex to take place in, a, in the context of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Uh, the Bible celebrates sex. Sex is great. It's awesome. It's amazing. Uh, it, it's there for our, for our enjoyment. It's just that it takes place in the context of marriage, in a, commitment, a committed lifelong relationship whether it's homosexual sex or whether it's heterosexual sex. It, if it takes place outside the context of those boundaries, uh, then, it's, then it's out of bounds. And the Bible is, is clear uh, on that. It's a union between uh, one male and one female. Uh, it, it, Genesis particularly also talks about um, that relationship is certainly for, made for intimacy and closeness and things that come with that, but it's also for Procreation It's for, for having children and raising children, being fruitful, uh, and, and having a family. It's, it's meant for those things as well. And so with this background, you get to Romans chapter 1, and people have suppressed that truth, that reality, and they've gone about and, and pursued relationships uh, of their own making, of their own device, of their own desires. And that's what Paul is describing here, these relationships between... Men and men and women and women uh, acting in uh, what the Bible calls an unnatural way. Now, here's the the pushback. There are some individuals who uh, would uh, say that the Bible accommodates uh, uh, same-sex attraction. It it accommodates that kind of lifestyle, that kind of um, type of uh, conviction or, or person, so to speak. And they will take a passage like this, and we would think, well, they're doomed. Their, their argument is over uh, once they hear what, what Paul has to say here. But those with an accommodating uh, position will say, well, this passage actually helps them. It, it helps their cause. Because what they would interpret it as, or what they would see what's going on here, Paul is condemning, what Paul is condemning, he's committing heterosexual people who are acting unnaturally by pursuing homosexual relationships meaning it's not who they are, and because of that, and they're presuming those relationships, that's what's out of bounds. He doesn't, uh, Paul is not talking about people who, who by nature are homosexual or same-sex attracted. It doesn't include them, and so Paul is not saying it's out of bounds for them because it's in their nature. It's, it's, that's, what they, that's who they are, so that's what they can go after you understand You you see some of the, the the pushback there? And part of the justification for that kind of argument is Paul doesn't know what we know today. Uh, we know today that this is typically that uh, somebody who has same-sex attraction, is, it's natural for them, it's, it's normal for them, it's, it's part of who they are. And because we know that, we know that certainly Paul is not talking about that type uh, of person. Well, the pushback I would give uh, with this is is this. That Paul is talking about he uses words for for natural things like against nature, and he 's not talking about a subjective experience of who you are and what you 've experienced, but he 's talking about um, things that have been expressed in the created order, things that, that God has put in a fixed way that they 're acting in contrary against they 're not acting contrary against their own subjective experience they 're acting contrary to What is the way that God naturally intended things uh, to be? Some will protest and they'll say that, well, I was just born this way. I was born with these feelings. I was born with these desires. I was born with with this is just who I am. It's been with me as long as I can remember. It's not like I decided this. It's just who I am. How do you answer that? What does the Bible say about that? But in one sense, I want to say I'm not really sure, uh, but there's another part of me that says wants to say this: uh, that homosexuality homosexuality seems natural in the same way that anger feels natural, or the same way that selfishness feels anger uh, feels natural, in the same way that that pride feels natural. Meaning that just because it's it's it seems like it's a natural expression of our sin nature, of our our brokenness, of our fallen uh, condition. Because it feels natural doesn't mean it's built into our constitution. doesn't mean that it's been fixed there uh, by God. Uh, So, uh, uh, other uh, objections. You talk about uh, objections people have in a more broad sense to... Uh, the Bible and same-sex attraction go like this. Some will say, after hearing why the Bible does not accommodate homosexuality, they will say that that's your interpretation. Uh, they'll say, you say the Bible doesn't accommodate homosexuality. Some will say, well, I can find other biblical scholars, other commentators, other individuals say that the Bible does make space for this lifestyle, does make space for uh, somebody who uh, believes this way. That may be the case, but just because you find somebody that has that view doesn't mean that it's right, doesn't mean that it's orthodox, doesn't mean that it's true. And, it, and I would challenge somebody to, to go back and read the text for yourself, read the passages for yourself, and see what the Bible communicates what the Bible is trying to say about the nature of of sex and relationships and and marriage and men and women. Another objection that you may have heard is people say to our Christians, they'll say, you Christians, you have all these passages that say that uh, same-sex attraction is, is not permissible, and you'll go to places like Leviticus, and you'll point towards Leviticus 19, and you'll talk about uh, how it's outlawed there in addition to other passages that you see in the New Testament. And they'll accuse us of, of cherry picking. That what you're doing is you're picking the passages that you want to believe and you're leaving aside other passages, other laws. For example, in Leviticus it talks about the type of thread you can use or it talks about the type of food you can eat and can't eat. And they'll say, you're not, you don't care about these laws, you don't care about these things, so why are you picking on this one? You see what, you see the, the thought there? You're, it's like you're just picking the laws that you want to follow and not the ones, and you're not being consistent. Well, my answer to, to this goes like this. As believers, as New Testament believers, we follow the Old Testament laws that have been... We do not follow Old Testament laws that have been expressly done away with or fulfilled by Christ. We do not follow and obey Old Testament laws that have been expressly done away with or fulfilled by Christ. And for example, we see this in the ministry of Christ. You go to somewhere like Mark chapter 7, and Jesus talks about how he has made all the food that you once called unclean, that you couldn't touch, that you couldn't eat, I'm making that clean now. You can now take part in that. See what he's doing. He's fulfilled. You go a little bit further in the Scriptures, you can go into a place like Acts, and you'll see that Christ has fulfilled those clean laws that He makes us clean. He makes us approachable to Him. And so those kind of old laws, like touching lepers or touching a dead body, that we don't obey those anymore because in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of how Christ has fulfilled those things on our behalf. Some others will say that Christ never talked about homosexuality. He never addresses this uh, in in His Gospels, in His ministry, never brings this up as an issue. Well, yes, but he also never talked about uh, incest. He also never talked about bestiality. He also never talked about rape. And we all know that those things are wrong and shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be engaged with those things at all. If you go and look at Jesus' his teaching on marriage, you go to a place like Matthew chapter 19 where he's talking about divorce and he's reflecting upon the Old Testament and how God has established these relationships between man and a woman and, and, and marriage and what's the, what that relationship looks like, he's upholding those Old Testament laws, those Old Testament um, things that God has already established At this point, I think it's we think about all this opposition and we think about the objections that that, that people have. Maybe you're asking, why do we even have to talk about this? Why do we have to talk about homosexuality? Why do we have to talk about same-sex attraction? Aren't you just by bringing this up, you're being divisive? You're being polarizing. You're causing undue stress on individuals and people. Why even bring it up? Well, remember the context of what Paul is doing in chapter 1, that he is building a case. In a sense, what he's doing, he's saying this is the bad news. This is who we are, that we all need a Redeemer. We all need a Savior because we all fall short. We all don't uh, merit God's love and God's acceptance, God's righteousness on our own. We need somebody uh, to intercede for, somebody to, to, to come, and that's where the gospel comes in. And when you understand who we are and we understand the gospel, it leads us to a position of humility, humility before him and a humility before other people. There's been um, one book that I think that's been helpful for me as I've, I've thought about this issue. Uh, the author's name is, uh, is a woman named Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield, and, and the book is called the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert Now Miss Butterfield Was a uh, Practicing lesbian uh, She was a professor At uh, Syracuse University Sorry Clemson fans And she was in the um, a, a teacher there A professor there uh, Engaged in that lifestyle And very proactive in her position And uh, this was she wrote a response piece in the in the local newspaper about promise keepers. Some of you remember that promise keepers ministry that was mostly with uh, for a men's ministry, and she wrote a response to them, uh, and she wrote a response, kind of included in there the, the, a critique of the religious right and, and Christians and things like that, and as you imagine, she got a lot of feedback. Uh, some people were like, you know, you, you go, this is great, glad to hear this. Others were critical, and there was one uh, individual, he was uh, a Presbyterian pastor at a Reformed church in town, and he wrote to her, and um, winsomely, uh, he would say, and I think Miss Butterfield would say too, uh, critiqued her and responded to some of her criticisms, and that kind of began a, a little bit of a relationship. They went back and forth, uh, sharing ideas and exchanging uh, thoughts and um, arguing with one another. And then eventually, at some point, the pastor said, you know what, why don't you come over one night for dinner? I want to have you in my house. I want to talk to you more. I want to get to know you more. Why don't you come over? And that began a two-year conversion process uh, for uh, Rosaria, uh, sitting down and, and eating with this uh, family, eating with this minister, and them talking back and forth and, uh, and listening to one another. And at one point in her book, she writes this about how she's uh, kind of experiencing the the reality of the Bible and the reality of Jesus more uh, in her life when she's really wrestling with this. And I quote from her book. She writes, "Uh, My friends from the gay community were on the alert. On Thursday nights, I had a regular tradition. I made a big dinner, opened up my home for anyone in the gay, gay and lesbian community to come and eat and talk about issues and needs. A regular at these events was a transgendered woman, Jay, a dear friend of mine who lives full-time in drag. She is biologically male but lives full-time as a woman and has taken female hormones for long enough that he is now chemically castrated. I was in the kitchen, and Jay came in to help. She told me point-blank that all this Bible reading was changing me, and she wanted to know before any more pasta could be served or wine glasses filled, what was going on in my life at first i denied it but she pressed finally i said what you what would you say if i told you that i'm beginning to believe that jesus is real is a real and risen and loving and judging lord and that i am in big trouble she sat down at the kitchen stool exhaled deeply took my small hands in her large ones and said rosaria I know that Jesus is a risen and living Lord. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years, and during that time I prayed that the Lord would heal me. He didn't, but maybe he'll heal you. I pray for you. The next day, when I came home from work, I found two milk crates overfilled with books. Jay gave me her library of theology. Just a few summers ago, when I was when I read through John Calvin's Institute, in pen, in my friend's handwriting, the cautions, notes to self, be careful here, don't forget Romans 1, Romans 1, especially verses 24 through 28, contain the most frightening lines in Scripture to anyone struggling with sexual sin. Miss Butterfield now is married to a Presbyterian pastor. She has her own children and in homeschools, at least at the writing of that of that book, and is still at uh, speaking uh, and engaging this uh, community. But I bring that before you to, to give you a picture of how God works through relationships, and I think it brings up the issue: How do we, as a church, respond to individuals who are struggling with, who have questions with this, uh, or who have criticisms of of what the Bible says? About it. And the pastor in this book is a great example of what God could do uh, through us. And so let me offer maybe two uh, positions I think we can, we can have as we think about uh, this uh, issue, what we can do. The first thing I think we need to bring to the table is personal repentance. Now, when I talk about uh, same sex attraction, uh, now I'm not talking about it in a political sense. I'm not talking about it as a, a, with a legislative agenda or, you know, cultural criticism or anything like that. How do we as a church who, who know the truth of God, how do we communicate that truth, but how do we do it in a way that communicates the gospel as well? And I think one of those ways is being uh, recognized in our own personal repentance, recognizing our own personal sin. There's a passage in um, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and he's given instruction to them. If you want to go and, and critique somebody, if you want to go and, and challenge somebody, he says, get the log out of your own eye before you start talking about the speck in somebody else's eye. And you think about how humorous that is if you're walking around with a big log in your eye and you're just talking about everybody else's speck and everybody's just looking at you and you look ridiculous talking to me like that because there's this huge log coming out of your eye. And for us to be, to recognize our own sin, our own ways that we fall short. We may not struggle with this sin, we may not struggle with this issue, but there's other things that we do struggle with. There's a, a laundry list that, that Paul gives at the end of this passage, and for us to be sensitive to those things. Some time ago, I heard one pastor relay a story about a conversation that he had with another pastor friend of his, and for the sake of conversation, let's just say that his, this pastor's name is Chuck, and Chuck one day is uh, working with this individual and uh, this individual has got, got long hair. He just looks like he's had a rough life, okay? The way he talks and the way he dresses and carries himself, he just looks like he just, he just had a rough life. And this pastor and, and this other individual, they're working together, and for whatever reason, they just kind of hit it off. They kind of connect. And uh, the pastor makes his comment uh, to him. He says, because the issue of religion and Christianity coming up, had come up, he says, you know, I'm the worst sinner. I'm just the worst sinner ever. is what the pastor was saying, and then the conversation kind of dissipated, and the day was over, and they didn't. They went on their ways. Sometime later in the near future, this guy came up to the pastor and says, "You know, I want to. I got to ask you a question." He says, "Come on in." They sit down. They talk. He says, "He said you told me that you were the worst sinner ever, and you know what? I just don't believe that because I know my own life. I drink too much. I womanize too much." I use too much language I shouldn't, I shouldn't use. I just can't believe that you're the worst sinner. You're a worse sinner than I am. What, what, what do you mean by that? And he basically went on to, to say to him, he says, I'm a worse sinner because I don't care about people for eternity. I, I know the gospel. I, I know the truth and, and saving message of Jesus Christ. I know the reality of the afterlife. And there's this unconcern, deep unconcern in my heart for, for people and where they're going and what's happening to them. I don't pray for them like I should. I don't uh, engage them like I should. And that's why the pastor would say, I'm a, I'm a worse sinner because I know this great saving message and there's so much, uh, at times, just unconcern and lack of compassion uh, for the lost. I wonder, as we think about our own sin, and as we think about the sin of same sex attraction, some of us think that is overboard. I, that is like the, the, the worst kind of thing ever, and it just turns us off. Just because you can't imagine doing that doesn't mean it's the worst sin ever. That our sin before him looks just as heinous. Uh, the list that Paul gives at the end of, of this chapter, starting in verse 29, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All people who do not love God, who do not know Him, who are suppressing the truth, are guilty of these things. And the point that Paul is trying to drive home, the case that Paul is building... Is the need for all of us to know the gospel, to embrace the good news. And so as we think about discussing this, as we think about praying for individuals, it's to know we do it in the context of our own sin and our own Savior that's been given to us. The other thing is, the last thing is this, and then we'll we'll close with one thought in a prayer. As the church... I don't mean, I mean this local church, but I mean the church, you know, as a family of believers. Are we making it easy for individuals to talk about this with us? Are we make it easy for individuals who struggle with this. Is it easy for them to talk about it with us? Because I wonder if sometimes they hear us and the language that we use about them, the attitude that we display about them, the judgmental or... Um, The heinousness of of what they're doing, our attitude towards them, and they hear us talk about them, and they think, there's no way I'm going to bring this up with them. There's no way I'm going to approach them. They are not safe. They're going to meet with judgment and criticism and hatred. Is there a way that we can think about how we are describing this issue and making it inviting for people? Who may want to talk about it, talk about it with us. Tim Keller at one point wonders and and desires that the church would be better off if we looked more like a waiting room for, for a doctor versus a waiting room for a job interview. You know what a waiting room for a job interview looks like? You're clean, you're together, all your weaknesses, those things are buried, those things are hidden. When you're in the waiting room to see a doctor, everybody's sick, and everybody's open about their sickness. Nobody's hiding that fact. Nobody's hiding that reality. Do we go, uh, do we further the advance of the gospel if we're living like, as a church, like we're in the sick room, like we're waiting to see the doctor? One last thought, and then we'll pray. The refrain is, over and over, is God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over three times. There's another place in, in Romans where Paul uses that, that same phrase of, of giving over. It takes place in, in Romans 8. Paul writes, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will we not also with him Graciously give us all things. I want you to walk away and remember that while we may have been giving up on God, turning away from Him, suppressing the truth, exchanging uh, worship of Him for something in creation, that God was thinking about us, and He gave up His Son for us, so that we can know Him, so that we can be forgiven. So that we can know His grace and His mercy. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our damage, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our guilt, He gives us His Son. Would you pray with me? Father, we wouldn't be here if You didn't give up Your Son. We would have no hope in the world if you did not give up your son. We would have no confidence if you did not give up your son. We would have no rest if you did not give up your son. We would have no peace if you did not give up your son. We wouldn't know true reality. We wouldn't know true truth. Father God, we treasure that you gave up yourself for us. In light of our brokenness. We may not have all the answers. We know that this uh, subject is is very difficult, is very emotional, very personal. We ask that you would use us, though. Use our prayers. Use our words. Use our relationships. And that your Spirit uh, would be at work to bring healing and to point us towards your truth, the joy of worshiping you as our Creator, as our Lord and as our Redeemer. We ask in Christ's holy name, amen.